0: Arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis, in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane, and ten bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. We are ending the way we started, with the theme from Dark Shadows. I have often wondered, when i watched a person with great power, as to how they obtain that power. Most people achieve power legally, morally, and ethically. But there are those who use other people, stomp over other people, or funnel illegal funds in order to get ahead. That's what the butterfly and the deadly storm is all about. So how do you nail somebody for murder 40 years in the past? Especially somebody important. Here's where poor Catherine is on some ethereal dream state level. When she basically lives time from 40 years ago in segmented dreams where she witnesses a murder. And she ends up with transformation therapy. Escaping just in time to emerge in 1958 with Tucker and Roz. Trying to stop Ritter when he was 19 years old proves to almost be insurmountable. But it was not insurmountable, as we shall see in the finale of The Butterfly in the Deadly Storm by Robert P. Fitton. The bronze-white 1956 Chevy stunk like a cheap bathroom air freshener. The unflinching Ritter and the more gregarious Dimitri both trained their glistening revolvers on Tucker and Catherine. Rizzo drove along the... Rust Terminal's brick clock tower about a block from the crowded fair midway. The city buildings merged into a more residential section and then into a rural area. Catherine clutched Tucker as the sunlight flashed across her closed eyelids. He occasionally berated both Demetri and Ritter, but they no longer responded and kept their guns targeted. She had prepared herself to face death ever since she first returned to Plymouth but now they would die without bringing the men in the front seat to justice. Dimitri whispered something to Ritter and then turned to Rizzo. Rizzo raised his brows and nodded. At the traffic light, he shifted the car and turned at a gas station and onto a narrow road. Change your plans, said Dmitri. I wouldn't want anyone linking your bodies with, any- with anything in Plymouth Bay. The smell of raw sewage tainted the influx of cool air. The city's sewer beds will serve my purposes. You'll all rot in hell, said Catherine. You killed Roz. Who the hell are you people anyway? Dimitri pointed at Tucker. I'll find your contact, Tucker, and he'll be killed. Do you understand that? Tucker said nothing, and his glassy blue eyes tracked the road ahead. Past a row of trees in a tiny cemetery, Rizzo brought the Chevy into an open, bumpy surface, leading to a distant levee. Dust rose into the autumn air as he swerved and skidded to a stop in an open area below the levee ridge. Ritter, the gun propped in his hand, pushed open the passenger door, and Dimitri slid out behind him. Rizzo had a rifle aimed at them as he backed out of the driver's side door. He flipped up the seat. Get out! Get out and be killed is what you mean, said Tucker. That is entirely correct, said Dimitri from the hood outside. Catherine stiffened her body and tightly gripped Tucker's hand. But Tucker leaned back in the seat and laughed. You're all a bunch of losers. You're about to meet your maker, Tucker, said Ritter, standing with Dimitri. Maybe so, but you're going to have to clean up quite a mess here in this car, aren't you, Conrad? Stop wasting time, said Dimitri. Get them the hell out of that car. Ritter turned, the gun in his hand. Me? Nick, get them the hell out of the car. Rizzo exposed his crooked teeth and threw the gun to Dimitri. Leaning over the folded seat, he stuck his crew-cut head back inside to grab Tucker. Tucker cocked his fist and popped Rizzo's nose. Rizzo raised his hands and fell back. Blood encircled his lips and seeped into his mouth. He removed a dirty green rag from his back pocket and spoke through the muffled fabric. Let me shoot the son of a bitch, Dimitri! Then he grasped his rifle with one hand get the girl. Tucker dove over the front seat and started the car, but Ritter fired the gun, smashing the side window and glass went flying. The car lurched a few feet forward as the engine shut off and Tucker leaped out the open door. Then Rizzo grunted as he clawed his way into the back seat. Catherine squirmed across the seat, but Ritter caught her from the other side. Rizzo pushed her out the passenger door and Ritter flailed her face with the gun, sending her to the ground. The odor from the city sewer beds nauseated her as her face pulsed in pain. On the other side of the Chevy, Rizzo yanked her up, but as she staggered, she called out for Tucker. Tucker! Tucker! Up the embankment, both of you, yelled Dimitri. Rizzo had the rifle barrel at Tucker's temple. You heard him. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> You scum Ritter said Tucker. Without the guns, I'd kill you both with my bare hands. They reached the bottom of the dike. Kill them right here, ordered Dimitri. Catherine kicked Rizzo's wrist. The gun arced over the Chevy, but Rizzo swung the rifle toward her. He pointed the barrel at her throat and smiled in the gray light. She looked into his dark eyes, but he quickly winced and dropped the weapon. As three quick shots echoed down the levee wall, and he collapsed to the dirt. Ritter and Dimitri lay on the ground behind the Chevy. Tucker picked up the rifle and led Catherine up the grassy embankment. Dimitri, on his belly, nudged his head around the tires. Tucker unloaded the gun at him as Catherine scrambled with him up the grassy wall. The putrid odor thickened along the murky beds. As Dimitri assumed a firing position near the fender, Tucker pulled Catherine onto the top of the embankment as a single bullet whizzed overhead. "'Too close!' said Tucker. He slid her downward toward the sewer beds. She expected Ritter and Dimitri to bound over the top with their weapons drawn at any moment. Additional bullets tracked over the embankment. Tucker waited and then moved her slowly up the levee. He stuck his head over the edge as Catherine slid onto his shoulder. A racing police cruiser's blue and red lights pulsed across the flat plains below the embankment shadows. In the headlights' glare, Both Ritter and Dimitri retreated along the earthen wall. Then Ritter sprinted toward a thicket hundreds of yards away as Dimitri crawled like a crab up the levee slope. Dan Jansen popped out of the cruiser with his weapon drawn and immediately started after Dimitri up the slope. Johnny Lorton darted left and chased the fleeting Ritter near the woods. Dimitri ran only a few dozen yards away along the dike. Jansen sounded like a drill sergeant in the late afternoon sunshine. Drop it, Maritokas! Dimitri gripped the gun and shouted at Jansen. I have a team of lawyers and I'll walk! You scam bug Kerrigan and ordered his death, cried Tucker, inching forward with the rifle on the dirt-packed surface. One phone call and you'll all be dead! Billy and Shane didn't deserve to die, Catherine yelled from below, and neither did Roz. ''Drop the gun now!'' demanded Jansen. Dmitri gazed at the sand. ''I will do nothing without my lawyer present!'' Birds scattered overhead within the sewer bed stench. Dimitri started to raise the gun, and Tucker shot the rifle once. Dimitri's body snapped back, and he swung the gun. Tucker fired again, and Dimitri staggered down the slope toward the sewerage. He again attempted to point the gun. Tucker aimed the rifle from his shoulder and fired three times in succession. Dimitri stumbled back and splashed into the sludgy human waste. Tucker, his face contorted, stared across the murky surface. The distant wail of police sirens beyond the thick, colorful foliage across the pit grew louder. In the sunshine, Dimitri's body floated face up in the grunge. Jansen's eyes moistened as he placed his hand on Tucker's shoulder. You did the right thing, Tucker. You did the right thing. Tucker twisted his facial muscles as Catherine slid her arm around his coat. He would have gone free, Danny. I just couldn't allow that. I couldn't. A burst of visitors would arrive later that fall at the Thanksgiving ceremonies in Plymouth, and the tourist season along the water had ended. A freezing drizzle lingered with the cold breeze along the Plymouth dock. Catherine squeezed Tucker's hand. Her eyes were fixed on a bobbing state police boat anchored several hundred yards along the spits bordering the bay. Since 5 a.m., divers had searched below the rough waters for Shane and Billy's bodies. She had little doubt they would soon be buried next to Bud Kerrigan and Roz in the cemetery along the highway. Rita can't survive a police manhunt forever, said Tucker as he read the front page of the Brockton newspaper. He has for five days, Tucker, she said as they moved along the dock. Jansen said we'd be contacted by the state's attorney general. I think O'Connor will unload everything he knows about Dimitri's mafia connections. Tucker stopped and held her shoulders. Then he won't be around long, will he? He shielded his eyes and scanned the Blue Bay. But we will be. We're still back here in 1958. That wall in the rope factory is just that, a wall. There's no getting back. All those hours we spent trying to go through, there's no sign of seculatier. And the only real future is ahead of us here, now. I've gotten kind of used to things back here, Catherine. Not having a cell phone, no cable TV, no computer. You know, there just isn't that constant pressure of everything coming at you back here. Catherine glanced at the Mayflower and then at the empty granite portico where Shane and Billy had died. She retreated a few steps from the group and crossed her arms. The black-and-white yearbook image of the dark-eyed Shane Kerrigan and the youthful Billy captured her thoughts. She fixated on the portico's smooth gray pillars, but gradually panned back to the bay's choppy waters and visualized Roz on the cordless phone back at the apartment, her throat tightened. I've learned not to question some things, Tucker. She looked into his vibrant blue eyes. The minute water beads lined his brown Stetson. I would never have believed that somebody dead would enter my consciousness either. Well, I still don't believe it. Several smaller boats from the town buzzed toward the main boat across from the harbor. I want to head for the hinterland, Tucker. Live on the land. I want to see the sun rise and set every day of my life. I want to see the stars change position in the night sky with the seasons. And I want to feel the cold winter air biting at my face as I grow old. He moved his arm around her and pulled her closer. And I want to see all of that in your eyes. A black and white cruiser rounded the seawall and started up the dock. Dan Jansen in full uniform stepped outside with the engine running. Jansen hurried down the dock. Any word on the divers, Danny? They just pulled something from the bay, Tucker. Jansen removed his hat and dabbed his handkerchief on his forehead. He peered over the bay as a small speedboat cut across the water toward the dock. The boat slowed and approached at an angle. Ah, here comes Trooper Anson. He'll confirm this. Confirm what? asked Catherine. Anson, in a heavy coat, shouted into the wind, Danny! They find the two kids, asked Tucker. Anson slowed the little boat and steered the rear motor with his left hand. Then he threw a new rope to Jansen, but his voice had a strange modulation. You're not going to believe what they found. Believe what? Asked Jansen in a lowered, slurred voice. Anson's body movements slowed as he reached for Jansen's hand. Jansen stood motionless in his blue police uniform and coat. Even the waves rocking against the boat hull were soon solid like a melted wax across the bay. Danny, she shouted, but Jansen did not move. She turned to Tucker and grabbed his shoulder. Tucker, what's happening here? Jansen, he yelled at the police officer, but Jansen remained rigid as the rocks along the jetty. Catherine grabbed Jansen's arm. His hand felt like a block of ice in the freezer. She lifted her hands away. Anson stood on the boat. "'Tucker put his hand on her shoulders. "'What is this, more nonsense from Sacalatita? "'I'm not sure.' "'The traffic had stopped in progress. "'A few people were stiff inside a crosswalk. "'Why are we still able to move? "'I'll be damned.' "'To her left, the bay brightened around Jansen's fading body. "'The bay waters were darkened as Anson and the boat "'followed Jansen into nothingness. "'Tucker put his arm around her "'as they retreated along the weathered dock boards.' Beyond the silhouetted town buildings, the skies cleared to wispy clouds, lightly smeared across the western sky. I'm afraid. I ain't exactly overly optimistic. Buildings disappeared and other buildings rose from the ground in seconds. Clouds raced overhead. She slowly turned when the sky lightened to a crisp blue and a snow cover coated the extended dock area. Smaller cars moved effortlessly down Front Street. She looked into his eyes and then back toward the timeless portico. How? she asked, looking back toward the bay. What was Anson going to say? Tucker stared at the blue waters and the blanketed snow spit in the harbor. I don't have the answer to either question. We have to find out if they found Billy and Shane. Don't tell me Ritter got away with this. A car horn beeped several times at the stand across the street. Near a small rotary, Roz's yellow Mustang idled at the curb. Oh, my God. The Mustang looped around the street toward them. Catherine raised her hands to her mouth as Roz's window moved downward. Hey, where have you two lovebirds been? Roz, how can you be alive? Asked Catherine through her tears. Please, I was going to ask the same thing of you, she said as she got out of the car. She wore a puffy pink coat with a furry white collar, and she hugged Catherine. I've been looking for you guys for two days. Catherine wiped her eyes. Oh, Roz, it's all right, kid. What about Ritter? asked Tucker. Roz glanced down at him, but continued to hold Catherine's hands. Not a word about him anywhere. Tucker tilted his head. What do you mean? Can't find anything about him. Nothing about his TV show, nothing about his running for governor. It's like he doesn't exist anymore. He looked at Catherine. We need to go to the cemetery. Well, I hate cemeteries, you know that, said Roz. We need to find the truth. Tucker jaunted ahead of Catherine as she and Roz locked arms across the snow. The sunlight swept across the area, hiding the snow-covered gravestones. Tucker turned at Bud Kerrigan's stone and put his hands on his hips. Very strange. Shane and Billy? asked Catherine. Nothing, he said as they stepped through the snow. Bud died just like before. And Mrs. Carrigan is here now, too, but nobody else. A small plastic-lined cart moved up the plowed Cemetery Road. The same guy from before flipped back the plastic and adjusted his sunglasses. His gray curly hair stuck out of the side of his Navy Boston Red Sox stocking cap. He lit a cigarette and crossed the snow. "'Can I help you folks?' "'Al Weaver,' said Tucker. He squinted at Tucker. "'Right,' he said, taking a long drag. "'We can't find the graves of Shane Carrigan and Billy Ellis.' "'That's because you're standing on them.' Tucker looked confused, and then he nodded. He moved his boot over the snow like a clock pendulum. Catherine and Roz followed his example. Roz slipped but steadied herself. Then she found a black stone.' Catherine found a second stone. She stepped back and saw the worn, chiseled names of Shane Kerrigan and William Ellis. Then she turned to Weaver. Tell me, Mr. Weaver, many years ago, 1958, how did they die? Weaver chucked the cigarette into the snow. He removed his sunglasses and blood vessels surrounded his green eyes. Well, it was a big deal back then. The attorney general said a disc jockey named Conrad Ritter had shot the boy and girl. Ritter worked for WXBN as an announcer. State troopers found the bodies of Ellis and Kerrigan. Word is Ritter and some other guys worked for the mob. Before he died, Danny Jansen would tell the story of how he shot the mob guy in the head in Brockton. He fell right into the sewer beds up there, and Ritter, well, he shot himself dead in the harbor. That's what the state trooper was going to tell Dan Jansen, said Tucker. Is Ritter buried here? Weaver shook his head and lit another cigarette. "'Nope. Ashes were stolen.' "'But he is dead,' asked Catherine. "'I heard one story about the mob got the urn "'and dumped it in the Brockton crud where the other guy was killed. "'But that's just an urban legend.' "'Tucker thanked him, and he returned to the golf cart. "'Catherine stared at Tucker as the cart hummed away. "'She put her arm around Ross. "'There are a thousand paths to justice, Tucker.' Tucker's crow's peak's tightened. Shane and Billy never got to live out their lives, but we can live out ours. She caught Tucker's eyes in the late afternoon sunlight. I want to disappear, Tucker, leave this place, head west and keep driving west, what do you say? Roz pushed her over to Tucker. I think he's already said it, Catherine Marie. He's already said it. If you've ventured this far to the end of the book, I thank you very much for listening. Next week, a change of pace. I have a series called the Matthias Jones Mysteries, which I warn you is not your typical crime-solving gumshoe series. Murder, mayhem, and monkey business. The mixture of humor and silliness with the seriousness of solving a murder makes the Jones series unique. I'm Robert P. Fitton, climbing aboard the plane and flying back to reality. Help me grow! All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.